Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is the Naked Scientist with Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansell. And we begin with a look at some of this week's top news stories. Diana. This week, an international team of researchers reported how they have used computer-aided design, or CAD, to build a precise mould that can aid breast reconstruction in cancer patients. Publishing in the journal Biofabrication, the team took laser scans of healthy breasts and then used CAD software to produce a tailor-made scaffold in silicon. Now, so far, this model has only been used by surgeons as a visual guide for reconstruction operations, but the researchers hope that very soon this 3D scaffold can be used in combination with tissue engineering. Lead author Professor Dietmar Hutmacher from Queensland University of Technology hopes to use this CAD model as a scaffold for the patient's own cells to grow through, meaning that a purpose-grown implant can be placed back into the patient. Now, the end result would be a new breast made of the patient's own tissue that is perfectly symmetrical to the original. And the study also examined how satisfied patients were following the operations where surgeons used this 3D model solely as a visual guide. And the patients did indeed report a higher degree of satisfaction with the end result than those patients whose surgeons used more traditional methods, i.e. pen and paper. So if tissue engineering takes off, this technology could lessen the impact of mastectomy and can be extended to other applications where tissue needs to be replaced with accuracy. So are they essentially getting a model of the breast and then 3D printing it in some manner which in the material which ideally you could then grow cells through and then you'd have essentially a breast again. Yeah, that's exactly it. They print it off in 3D uh, material, presumably some kind of silicon, and it has to be porous so that these cells can grow through it. Beautifully customised, wonderful. Now, on a slightly different subject, our precious metals like gold have been found to have a cosmic origin. For many years, very rare elements like gold, platinum and tungsten have been fascinating and confusing geoscientists. They're much more common in ancient meteorites on Earth. Um, But the problem isn't that they're very rare on Earth, but they aren't rare enough. The Earth was formed out of similar material to the meteorites, but all the energy from crashing into it and sort of accumulating to form a sphere thoroughly melted it. Slowly, the dense iron and nickel sank towards the centre, forming a metallic core, which is also thought to create the Earth's magnetic field. The problem is that this, as this iron and nickel sank, it should have taken with it almost all of the iron-loving elements, like gold, platinum and tungsten, leaving almost nothing in the crust. Matthias Vilbold and his colleagues have proved where the gold in your ring probably came from. They've been studying the abundance of different isotopes of tungsten, the common tungsten-184 compared to the less common tungsten-182, is interesting because tungsten-182 can be created by the decay of another element, hafnium-182, and the hafnium forms mineral silicon, so it wasn't pulled down into the core. So if no extra tungsten has been added to the system, there should be lots of extra 182 in the crust compared to the ancient meteorites. Interestingly, they didn't find this signal strongly in most of the rocks from all around the world they tested of various ages, except in very ancient 3.8 billion-year-old rocks in Greenland. This is very interesting as these rocks date from the end of a period of bombardment by meteorites. The group suggests that the meteorites brought in large quantities of tungsten-184 and, of course, all the other elements like gold and um, platinum to all over the rest of the Earth, but happened to miss Greenland. And then all, all subsequent rocks created on Earth have had lots of uh, meteoritic tungsten-184 mixed in. So this indicates a large proportion of the gold and platinum in your rings and any jewellery you've got, and, of course, the tungsten in your drill bits, probably crashed to Earth in meteorites relatively late in the Earth's history. 
So that's fascinating. All of the nice, pretty, heavy metals, and it's, it's these sort of heavy uh, decorative metals, actually came from outer space. Yes, um, certainly a very, very large proportion of it. How odd. So also in the news this week, researchers here in Cambridge have created mammalian stem cells that only contain a single set of chromosomes. Now, most mammalian cells are diploid. They contain two copies of each chromosome. And this is a complication for cell biologists and geneticists hoping to study the function of individual genes. So joining us now to discuss this work is Dr. Anton Woods. Hello. Good evening and thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Good to have you here. Can you start off then with um, why would haploid mammalian cells be useful? As you just said, basically normal animal cells are basically diploid, meaning they have two chromosomes, one from the father and one from the mother. So basically for each gene, there are two copies present in a cell. And basically the genome contains all the information that is needed for an organism to develop. And scientists uh, have uh, already obtained the sequence of all of those genes. However, we have to still figure out how these genes interact and what their overall contribution to development is. In that sense, what has proven very fruitful is just to look what happens if you sort of you lose the function of a particular gene and look what basically what effect it does have on development. If you're now trying to mutate genes in a diploid cell, it's very hard to hit both copies of the very same gene. And for this reason, it's very hard to determine then what the loss of this gene has a consequence for the cell. In haploid cells, you have only a single chromosome set and hence if you introduce a particular mutation automatically gene function is uh, sort of ablated and you can study the resulting effect. I see so rather than having pairs just by having this one chromosome with the gene that you want to study it sort of cuts out that extra factor of, of uncertainty. Yeah basically the genome has sort of a backup copy and that's lacking in the haploid case. I see so how have you gone about creating these these haploid cells? Basically, it, it has been long known that in, in mammals you can activate uh, the, the X cells or the oocyte and sort of uh, trick it into thinking it is fertilized without actually supplying a paternal genome via, via the sperm, which would uh, be introduced during normal fertilization. So by chemical um, manipulation, you can activate an X cell and it will divide and form an embryo with just a maternal chromosome set. And we have taken these embryos now and removed uh, a small cell clump basically from the blastocyst stage and brought this into culture conditions which have been highly optimized over the over the recent years by a number of groups and this has allowed us sort of to induce proliferation in these haploid embryonic cells in culture and allowed us sort of to maintain a permanently proliferative so growing cell line in culture. Um, have you put them into anything living? The cell that we, we cultivated is sort of, um, referred to as an embryonic stem cell and uh, conventional diploid embryonic stem cells have the ability to form basically all cell types of the embryo, of the mouse embryo. So we were very interested what is actually the potential of sort of a haploid embryonic stem cell. So we have introduced basically our stem cells back into the blastocyst of, of mice and looked if they can contribute to development. And to a large degree, they do so. So they can contribute the multiple organs and form different cell types in the embryo. However, we noticed that when they enter basically development and sort of differentiate into functional cell types, they diploidize. So basically their genome content becomes more normal. They end up with uh, pairs of chromosomes rather than the single ones. Why do you think that is, that they revert back to that state? We're not particularly clear on, on this, but one thought is that in, in mammals normally uh, in female mammals, one of the two X chromosomes uh, becomes inactivated and that's uh, to compensate for the dosage 
to sort of the male genome equivalent, which has only a single X chromosome, but also a Y chromosome. And so one idea is that basically these cells would be not balanced. So the normal developmental program is optimized for one active X chromosome and two sets of autosomes. However, in our haploid uh, case, we have a single X chromosome opposed to a single set of autosomes. So basically the X chromosome dosage is too high by a factor of two. And so we think that by sort of duplicating the maternal chromosome set, these cells can now inactivate one of the two X chromosomes again and sort of have a more normal gene expression pattern for development. I see. So so you can actually get cells acting sort of fairly normally even within this haploid state. But could this actually shed light on um, on another area of genetics, on epigenetics? Oh, indeed, the possibilities with the haploid cells would be now sort of to investigate uh, different pathways. This can range from cell signaling and um, metabolic pathways, but also, of course, interest in my group is is geared towards epigenetic pathways, sort of gene regulatory pathways detecting development. And I think we can tweak those cells by uh, deriving a suitable reporter constructs uh, into situations so that we can select for epigenetic mutations and sort of study how these processes are regulated, particularly in mammals. So this could really open a whole new field up in genetics. That's fantastic. Well, thanks, Anton. That's Anton Woods from Cambridge University. And that work was published in the journal Nature This Week. Dave. Again, onto a somewhat different subject. Engineers have managed to build thermal camouflage. Anything which is warm will grow. If it's very hot, it will glow in visible light, so you can see something glowing red hot or orange or even white hot. But even at body temperature, you are glowing, but you're glowing with invisible infrared light. If you've ever watched a police show, you've probably seen the footage from thermal cameras in helicopters which detect this light, so all the thief is glowing beautifully and the police manage to chase him. But this glow isn't only a problem for criminals, but also for the military, as a beautifully camouflaged tank in conventional light will still look just like a tank in the thermal infrared. A part of BAA Systems based in Sweden has developed a new form of camouflage which might help. It does this by covering your tank with lots of little electrical heat pumps, which I think pump heat from the the front into the air or from the air back into the front. Um, And because the air is transparent, you can't see the fact it's hot or cold. Um, These pixels can heat or cool the surface of the tank very rapidly, and the temperature of each of the pumps can individually set, so they work like pixels, building up almost like a video screen, thermal video screen. This means that the pixels can be set to mimic the temperature and pattern of the landscape behind the tank. So they've got a thermal camera pointing it behind the tank and then they kind of project this image on the front of the tank and so the tank appears to disappear. Or it can even be set to make the tank pretend to be a car or any other object. Um, They can also make these pixels much larger for something very big like a ship where there's no point trying to make it invisible close to. And apparently the system's fairly robust and actually even adds to the armour of the vehicle. That's incredible. But I can imagine just having lots of fun with that and maybe sort of generating this thermal image of a boat in the middle of a woodland or something just to confuse people. (laughs) They've actually got videos of them kind of projecting really random stuff on the side of the tank. Okay, most of them adverts for BAE systems, but (laughs) so so you could produce a film for people who happen to have thermal infrared cameras if you wanted. If you wanted to do that, I think that would be a very expensive way of doing that. But anyway, also uh, splashing all over the science news this week is a host of... revelations about Australopithecus sediba. Now, this particular early human has been in and out of our show since 2010, when Professor Lee Berger from the University of the Witzwaterstrand first published his discovery. What's important about these fossils is that 
At almost two million years old, they are amazingly preserved and they demonstrate characteristics of both Australopithecines and the species Homo. Now, Australopithecines are those early humans that had small brains but could walk about some of the time on two legs, whereas Homo tends to have a larger brain and walk almost exclusively on two legs. So publishing in the journal Science, it's been demonstrated that Sediba has some of the features of both groups. So here's Professor Lee Berger talking to our very own Chris Smith about some of those features of the Sediba skull. When you look at his nose, you can see that he's developing a real nose. He's actually beginning to project in this area. He's got that wide top of his head. And big his brows. Big brows, yeah. uh, you know, kind of reminiscent of what we sometimes describe as Homo erectus type brows. The sides of his head along the temporal, just above your ears, are very straight and flat. In Australopithecines, they curve outward, creating this sort of flared look. And, of course, you know, you're seeing a whole skull seen in rock right here. We can look inside of it and see this. So you, this, you scan this, you work out what's on the inside of that bone without having to touch it. Absolutely. And, you know, of course, because you know, your brain is sitting there pumping away with every heartbeat you have, forming a picture of itself on the inside of your skull, we can take the inside of that skull and create effectively what I'm holding here, an endocast. So that is what the brain would have looked like were, you, were this alive now and we taking the brain out. That is his brain, and it's about 420 cubic centimetres, and it's an interesting-looking thing. I mean, already you can see that it's somewhat asymmetrical. That's something that we tend to associate more with us than we do with apes and such as that. that the area along the side here is expanded, uh, or at least appears to be, and that's an the area, area you're Broca's referring area. to as Broca's area. Now, that's... Which, the bit I'm using to speak to you. That's exactly right. Well, at least that's one of the hypotheses of how that's using. And it has long been tied to the idea that if we were going to see a speaking hominid, we would see expansion in Broca's areas first. And you, you be the judge of, uh, of that, whether that is. It's a, it's a brain that's not shaped like a hominid at two million years should be shaped like. It's a brain shaped in most of what we see superficially like something you'd see a little bit later but with a few hangbacks of that. It's, it's a, small. It's, it's way too small. And there are other findings that put Sediba somewhere in between the Australopiths and Homo. It has arched feet, but quite ape-like heels and calves. It has cuffed teeth, which were large, but not as large as the usual Australopith. There are also differences from the earlier Australopithecines in the shape of the Sediba's pelvis. The flat, flaring sections, known as the iliac blades, are quite thick and vertically orientated, as you see in modern humans. But these aren't uh, any indications that these changes were actually associated with having bigger-brained babies. So what the authors very cautiously posit is that Sediba's hips were becoming more homo-like through walking much more like homo, and that bigger brains weren't required to drive certain changes in the pelvis. Plus, the fossil may provide some much-sought answers about the mysterious early hominin from Southeast Asia. Now that's Homo floresiensis, or the hobbit. And one of the problems, of course, you know with the hobbits and Flores, one reason people criticized it was there was no good ancestor. We didn't have an ancestor that had that small of a brain with all these derived features of Homo in it that could possibly give rise to something like Flores until now. So you could be looking at two things. One, the early evolution of language, and two an explanation for where the Hobbit people came from. It, it, and there are even little things like this beaking at the front of the brain that might tie it very, very directly to that. What a find. And you can hear more of that in a special half-hour interview with Professor Lee Berger on our website that's at thenakedscientists.com. Dave. 
And now looking at what else has been making scientific headlines, here's Mira Senthalingam with this week's Newsflash. Having an active social life could help you lose fat. There are two forms of fat in the body, energy-storing white fat and energy-burning brown fat. And now Matthew During and colleagues at Ohio State University have found that exposing mice to a challenging, socially interactive environment with more mice, more space and toys resulted in a much leaner population. So when we looked at these animals and looked at fat, it was remarkably reduced. The total fat was reduced by that 50 to 70%. Fat changed from white fat to brown fat, making it resistant to obesity and giving it much greater long-term health as well. A new biopolymer could increase the effectiveness of probiotic-friendly bacteria. Until now, the main challenge facing probiotic manufacturers has been getting enough bacteria to survive the acidic conditions of the stomach. But now, Isa Radetzka's team from the University of Wolverhampton have developed a polymer that acts as a protective coating. It's a bacterial polymer, it's water-soluble, biodegradable and edible. We, for example, use uncoated and coated bacteria into simulated gastric juice. The ones which were not coated, after two hours it was none left, but the ones which were coated with our polymer survive intact nearly 100%. The increase in survival time will allow greater numbers of bacteria to make it through to the gut where they do their work. A herb found in the mountains of the Pyrenees can live for up to 300 years without any signs of ageing. Johan Erlian from Stockholm University studied 206-year-old samples of the plant Borderia pyrenaica to get further insight into the role and importance of ageing in living organisms. We could find no evidence of uh, decreased performance with age, no evidence of senescence. Growth and reproduction were uh, constant over age and survival tend to increase with age. So actually performance improved with age. The important finding is that there is a lot of theoretical arguments if every organism has to senesce or whether selection can actually favor lack of senescence. And looking in different organisms will sort out why senescence sometimes is important and why it sometimes seems to be absent. Sony have launched a personal 3D viewing headset as part of its increasing 3D technology range. The headset was launched at the IFA 2011 Consumer Electronics Show in Berlin this week, with the head-mounted display intended to give an immersive 3D experience. The futuristic headset, complete with headphones, uses two high-definition screens which feed separate videos to a viewer's eyes in order to create a 3D illusion. However, the gadget doesn't come cheap, with a current retail price of $785. And finally, NASA have released high-resolution images of the Apollo moon landings. NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter captured the sharpest images ever taken of the Apollo 12, 14 and 17 landings. Using low-altitude narrow-angle cameras, the images clearly show the movement of astronauts on the Moon's surface, as well as the movements of the lunar rover, as NASA's Mark Robinson explained whilst looking over images of the landing of Apollo 17. Um, You can see very clearly both the astronaut tracks and the beautifully sharp and crisp parallel lines, which are the tracks of the lunar roving, lunar roving vehicle. And it's pretty neat because you know what the LRV looks like. You can, if you squint really hard, begin to resolve the seats and the fact that the wheels were uh, left turned slightly to the left. And you can see what Mark's discussing, as well as other images of the moon landings, online at our news pages at nakedscientists.com forward slash news. 
The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.